Hello everyone watching, listening. Good morning from Switzerland this time and welcome to the Free Radical podcast episode number 12. And this is your host Swami Padmanam here today in the company of a very special guest, contemplative author and Episcopal priest, Adam Buko. Adam, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for this invitation. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time, so it's great to be here. My pleasure. And I'll read before we start with Adam our conversation. I'll read a few words regarding his bio to introduce him to all of you. So Adam Buko has been a committed voice in the movement for the renewal of Christian contemplative spirituality and the growing new monastic movement. He has talked, engaged contemplative spirituality in Europe and the United States, and has authored Let Your Heartbreak Be Your Guide, Lessons in Engaged Contemplation, and co-authored Occupy Spirituality, A Radical Vision for a New Generation, and The New Monasticism, an Interspiritual Manifesto for Contemplative Living. Committed to an integration of contemplation and just practice, he co-founded the Reciprocity Foundation, where he spent 15 years working with homeless youth living on the streets of New York City, providing spiritual care, developing programs to end youth homelessness, and articulating a vision for spiritual mentoring in a post-religious world. He currently serves as a director of the Center for Spiritual Imagination at the Episcopal Cathedral of the Incarnation in Garden City, New York. Adam lives in New York with his wife, Kyra Jewel Lingo, a Buddhist teacher and former nun in the community of Teach Nhat Han. Together, they lead the Buddhist Christian community for meditation and action. So before we proceed, I'd like to share a few links for those who would like to contact with Adam and know about his work. We'll share that at the end as well. For those who are only listening, the links are Father Adam Buko, C-K-O at the end. And other link is spiritualimagination.org. Adam, FatherAdamBuko.com, spiritualimagination.org. So in connection to my personal experience of how did that get to know about Father Adam Buko, I came to know about Adam through, through Rory, Rory McKenzie, who was our guest a few weeks ago, and, and through their book, the, the book that the two of them co-authored on a new monasticism. And in time, and I discovered not only that, that we had with Adam a good number of common friends and inspirations like Richard Rohr or Elia Delio, but also that I got to know, and you correct me if I'm mistaken, Adam, but you have a very interesting some somehow epiphany experience while visiting India uh, when you have some prospect of becoming a contemplative, a sadhu somehow there. So as you can imagine, all this put together was intriguing enough for me to contact him eventually and have him today in our podcast. So this free radical podcast, as you know, revolves around the contents of my recent book, Radical Personalism. So I like Adam generally to invite any guests uh, to ask them what what's the term radical personalism means to you, whether one has read my book or not, what the term invokes in you to begin with. Yes, so for me, uh, the word personalism uh, points back to Emmanuel Mounier, um, uh -huh. who was a French uh, 20th century philosopher who very much uh, inspired uh, Dorothy Day. Uh, one mm. of my heroes, um, who essentially believed that 
each and every one of us should respond to the cry of the world, whether it's people struggling with housing insecurities, whether uh, it's people uh, who are being oppressed, uh, that we, do, we need to respond to it in a personal way, not necessarily waiting for institutions, but each and every one of us is responsible. And she proposed this very beautiful idea that unfortunately is not practiced very much. She said that if you have an extra room in your home, uh, turn that room into a Christ room, uh, mm -hmm. meaning that that room should be available to those in your neighborhood who may not have a place to sleep in. So yeah. for me, uh, that is really kind of how I understand personalism, that personal engagement matters. In addition to that, um, when I hear about radical personalism, uh, it also points to the ultimate reality, which some of our traditions uh, call God. Um, in the Christian tradition, you know, we say that God is personal, but God is not necessarily personal in a way that you and I are persons. Mm -hmm. God is personal in a sense that whatever that reality is, it loves us. Mm -hmm. um, and so those are kind of the, uh, the two things that really are immediately evoked by this phrase, radical personalism. Thank you for your contribution to the notion of radical personalism, which for me, it always keeps expanding. And I'm grateful for those who helped me to expand that notion as well. Mm -hmm. So today's topic, besides this introduction, the title of today's episode is let your heartbreak be your guide and we have chosen that title since this is adam's recently published book where uh, as we will see he explores not the, the notion of how those things which i really like that idea how those things that are more painful for us so to say can nourish our vocation and life call uh, and also knowing how adam is deeply engaged with the practice of contemplation as well as compassionate action in the world, compassionate being a unique form of heartbreak, so to say, I, 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 we thought that this today's title fit perfectly. So generally, I, I connect every title with some section of my book. The second part of my book has different radicals as part of radical personalism. And I will read this a few lines only in this connection. We will have a few words on radical activism, which appears in pages 120 to 123 and says, uh, social action and involvement should be encouraged in the Gaudia community, which is the name of our community, for those so inclined, and they should be properly educated by the elders as to how to engage in compassionate social action. We call this radical activism. So basically this particular section of the book inspired the title for today's episode, mm -hmm. Let Your Heartbreak Be Your Guide. So. I don't know, Adam, if you have any kickstart in mind to continue or start or continue unfolding our conversation in, in relation to whether the title or the notion of well, compassion so I, and social. Yes, yeah, yeah, so I think that, uh, you know, for me, uh, the connection between heartbreak and action is very important. As uh -huh. I mentioned in my book, the title for the book comes from a very specific incident that mm. took place in London a few years ago. 
uh, I think I was uh, on a book tour for Occupy Spirituality and I was invited to speak at this um, uh, wonderful center called St. Ethelberga's Center for Peace and Reconciliation uh, in London. And, you know, and the talk was great. We were in a dialogue with some local uh, spiritual leaders. But afterwards, a young woman came up to me and asked me as to whether, um, you know, I would have a few minutes to, to talk with her mm. uh, about, uh, you know, some of the questions that my talk kind of evoked in her. And she had, mm. you know, many questions, questions that are not unusual for the person her age. She had questions about, uh, you know, how to live. Uh, in a world that is kind of losing its way, um, mm. how to find out what her vocation was, how to stay alive without going numb, as she experienced so many kind of crises in our world, you know, from ecological crisis to crisis of income inequality and etc. And so we talked and talked, and to be quite honest with you, I felt like you know, I was kind of a little bit distracted because I knew that my plane, <laughs> you know, uh, that I need to catch my plane going to New York and I only had maybe yeah. three hours or something like that, you know, just an I hour can, to get to there. I can, I, mean, I can empathize with that situation. <laughs> yeah. And so finally, you know, she said something like, you know, people are just telling me I should do what makes me feel good, but that mm. feels cheap. Mm. And in that moment, you know, uh, this phrase from one of my friends, Angie Harvard, Harvey, kind of came to me. And he, you know, early in my journey, he said, uh, you know, don't follow your bliss, meaning don't follow, you know, what makes you feel good. Um, and in many ways, he was responding to Joseph Campbell's, uh, you know, famous program, um, and then a bumper sticker that kind of emerged, you know, just follow your bliss. And Angie Harvey said, don't follow your bliss. Look at the world and see where following our bliss has gotten us to. Instead, follow your heartbreak. So as she was kind of raising all of those questions, I said, what breaks your heart? Um, you know, let your heartbreak once you know what it is let your heartbreak be your guide and that sort of became the title of the book but you know like that conversation i forgot about it and then mm -hmm. months later i received uh, a message from her that basically said you know i sat with this question for a few months and i was getting really angry because nothing was really kind of no insight was really coming in relation mm. to my vocation. And finally, one day, I got so frustrated and I just gave up and then just turned on the TV to kind of, you know, have a moment of relaxation, so to speak. And immediately I noticed that my television screen was populated with images of Syrian refugees arriving on the Greek island of Lesbos. Women, men, children, all scared and broken and some barely alive. All of them were escaping the violence of war, hoping that somehow they can survive the journey across the ocean, really hoping for a new life. And so when she saw that, she said, in that moment, I knew what that question meant. I knew that immediately I had to get on the internet, buy a ticket, and the next day without telling a soul, go there. And so she wrote me a message from 
that island as mm. she was working with other volunteers to pick up essentially people from the Mediterranean Sea. And she said, you know, being here broke me into pieces, but it also gave me a new joy, the kind of joy that survives heartbreaks and difficulties, not the kind of joy that encourages me to avoid life, but rather the kind of joy that can face the difficulties, the suffering, and yet still survive, the kind of joy that we have when we know that we are doing something right. And so for me, in terms of radical activism, I think that that is the first thing. We have to turn towards the world, not just with our minds, but with our whole being and allow the difficulties, the pain, but also the joy and the beauty of the world to shatter us. And I think that once we have that experience, our operating system that normally likes to objectify others, people's pain, and that likes to be in charge of our lives, that cracks. Hmm. And that's the room for uh, the spirit of God to, I think, flow into our lives in a new way, to arise in us and begin to lead us. Um, into a life of compassionate service, into a life of devotion, into a life of, you know, letting God live through us as much as possible. And so for me, that's kind of, you know, the, the beautiful words that you read from your book. Radical activism starts that way. And then there are other elements, you know, in terms of how do we engage, because it's not just about our actions. It's also about institutions. It's also about what Dorothy Day called works of mercy. It's also mm. about us doing work internally to make sure that we're not just perpetuating things, you yeah. know, all systems of oppression. Uh, mm. And so all of that needs to be uh, part of that, you know? Thank you for... Such, such a kickstart that was really uh, inspiring and, and to the root again the word for me radical activism means radical means radix let's yeah. go to the root of the yeah world. we gotta go into those roots and hang out yeah. there to know yeah. what's going on if, if you don't, don't nourish the roots there is no sustainability with to which what grows from those roots basically and and as i am personally indebted to joseph campbell because uh, <laughs> The first time I heard about Krishna, uh, it was from a book that he wrote actually on different histories uh -huh. from the from the East, mm -hmm. uh, and he will write he will write about one story of Krishna called Damodar Lila. So somehow I has have my personal uh, indebtedness to him, but as I'm indebted to him, I I never agreed with that one. Follow your bliss. Yeah, and <laughs> I, you know, I, never, I mean, to be fair, that. he was talking about this Sanskrit. Term mm -hmm. Sachidananda, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. and essentially, I think what he was saying is, uh, if Sat is truth or being, uh, consciousness and Ananda, either bliss or, it you can get into that what he would call ultimate reality through any of those. Eventually, mm. bl bliss takes you into consciousness and being. Mm -hmm. But the way that it was sort of incarnated in American culture, which is yeah, very individualistic. Yeah. Uh, perhaps became a little bit of a problem because it just became a it it became this kind of a permission for us to do whatever we want, whatever yeah. makes us feel good. 
yeah, some variety of narcissism in the name of Ananda, so to say. <laughs> Thank you. That's that's yeah. well said. Yeah. No, yeah, yeah. And I appreciate that you make the difference of probably which was Campbell's ori original intention with the with the quote and how that became yeah. bumper sticker, as you mentioned. But but yeah, I totally agree that you cannot tell everyone follow your bliss. I mean, I, I'm just thinking at this moment, someone like Victor Frankl in Auschwitz and me yeah. getting close to him and telling him, follow your bliss, Victor. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And he himself reached that profound place, as you may know, in, in Man's In Search of Meaning, saying yes. that the goal of life is not happiness. The goal of life is not power. The goal of life is not suffering. The goal of life is yeah. purpose and meaning. Yeah. And we are to extract that from wherever we are, whether it's happiness yeah. or not. And sometimes we are having such a good time that we become quite distracted of extracting purpose. Yeah. And sometimes suffering has way more power to invite us to, to that particular focus. So, so yeah, as you mentioned, I think that this follow, follow your bliss, sorry, may became, for many became like becoming a dopamine addict or something, not just yeah, wanting yeah. the yeah. daily peaks. And I'm following Joseph Campbell with this. <laughs> but yeah. actually, yeah, the Ananda in our tradition has nothing to do with ephemeral, superficial, non-committed yeah. Uh, agitation, so to say, but a grounded, profound sense of joy, which includes suffering, paradoxically. Yeah. Yeah. And paradoxically, yeah. it includes suffering because at least, I, and I imagine we concur in this with Christianity, I mean, the more you love, in one sense, the more you will suffer. Yes. But yeah, the, suffer, the suffer will be in the context of love, so it's not suffer as we know it without loving, yeah. so we shouldn't be neurotic and afraid of that type of suffering but there is a sweetness to that pain so to say yeah yeah that that's exactly i think how uh, christian mystics would talk about it mm. and you know i'm glad that you mentioned this love and suffering and and also ananda and and joy and what it actually means within the tradition that you know perhaps campbell was kind of uh you know being inspired by in our work with homeless youth, what I discovered is we emphasize two things in terms mm -hmm. of helping people to discover their vocation. One was the heartbreak, but the other one was true aliveness. Mm -hmm. Because what we've discovered is that one's calling is kind of found in between those two. So like the woman in the story that I mentioned about, she, I think, discovered what you just beautifully uh, talked about, joy mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. somehow survives suffering, that is within wow. the context of, 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 of suffering. Um, and so for us, you know, when you really wake up, something something very unique that is yours to offer manifests in you. And that generates this sense of aliveness that, uh -huh. yes, I was born for this particular pur purpose. Uh -huh. But usually it's only when that sense of aliveness uh, is employed in service of what breaks your heart that you can uh -huh. fully kind of function in your vocation. Um, mm. You know, and again, I think a lot of it goes back to what you just said, uh, mm. the discovery of this love that also includes suffering, because I mean, in the Christian tradition, some people would say, you know, 
God's heart is breaking as God sees what we're doing to each other, what we're doing mm -hmm. to ourselves, you know. Uh, mm -hmm. And I'm reminded of uh, our friend Beverly Lanzetta, who, yeah. as a young woman, you know, had this really kind of profound experience. She was a spiritual seeker and had this experience that really surprised her, that left her bedridden for, I think, a couple of years after that. Mm. At first, she experienced this tremendous love that she almost thought she's going to die. And then also the suffering. And what she understood that to be was both the love and the suffering of the divine. Mm. Um, and it changed her life. And she talks beautifully about it in her autobiography, you know, how mm. both of those in her experience exist uh, in the heart of God. Hmm. So it's interesting what you mentioned, Adam, because also these days here in, I'm in Switzerland in one ashram, some friends have here in the Alps, uh, and we have been having a series of discussions, and one of the main topics was the nature of love and how love is including, again, a form of heartbreak, so to say, and, and, and we were talking from our particular perspective about how God's heart also breaks, so to say, mm -hmm. and how, how our heartbreak will take us to his heartbreak, so to say, mm -hmm. no? So, so yeah. how the, the two heartbreaks are interconnected with each other. And ultimately, at least in our tradition, we will also say things like, okay, God is uh, experiencing the height of love and the height of love implies, implies the height of heartbreak. And we are to offer ourselves in service even of, of that heartbreak no? in all the forms it takes. No, So like to identify ourselves of servants of the heartbreak of God, so to say, <laughs> no, and, and and for that allowing, yeah, yeah. allowing ourselves to be broken as well, because if His heart is bro brokening, it's not just I will fix your heart, God, but your heart, God, but mine is perfectly okay, you know. But just to align with that heartbreak and uh, yeah, and, and and be willing to, as you mentioned, I really love that quote that you mentioned, like find the type of joy that survives when your heart is breaking. That's so challenging. <laughs> basically but that's so so substantial i was thinking about yeah we can talk about confrontative joy the joy that confronts reality that allows suffering as part of the equation and evasive joy no like we wouldn't just want to be happy without without contacting each other's heart so so yeah regarding the idea of aliveness that you are mentioning and i totally agree that if there is not connection with any form of heartbreak yeah how much alive you are because aliveness has to include all the experiences it's not that i'm alive because i'm so joyful but at least on a personal level one of the the most the moments that i felt myself more alive probably were the most difficult ones i can say <laughs> yeah 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 thank you for that beautiful reflection hmm. And that, that reminds me also in our tradition, it's funny because Krishna in one verse in the Bhagavad Gita, he will say in second chapter, you have to learn to tolerate both suffering and happiness. Like implying, we generally think happiness, I want happiness and I want as much happiness as I want. But he says, that type of happiness that you are addicted to, you are actually have to tolerate it when it comes. No, mm -hmm. not instead of, yeah. and actually the idea is, look for that happiness that is within love and look for that love of course 
with this with this sorry we look for that happiness which is within suffering and mm -hmm. the suffering which is interconnected with love because if not we will just be looking for love without suffering yeah. and be yeah. running from suffering at all costs so we yeah. will miss we will miss both real love and real suffering <laughs> yeah yeah and, and we will pursue a fictional uh science fiction form of love and and experience suffering but not the real one so to say no <laughs> yeah yeah thank you for that beautiful reflection that's so beautifully said in terms of tolerating also uh, mm. happiness by the way you might be hearing my doggy barking no in problem the, no problem uh, as we have to tolerate happiness we can tolerate some barking no yeah, yeah it's not about tolerating and for yeah. my greetings to him <laughs> yeah yeah so Adam, how how does this play out for in your personal experience? This idea of okay, going through through a heartbreak that brings aliveness in, in your in your personal daily work on on social activism and dealing with people's heartbreak in the streets, trying to I don't know to give them a not only give them something to eat and somewhere to sleep, but to give them a sense of worthiness. I can I can assume because I imagine many of them maybe convinced that they are not worthy basically <laughs> so so that's kind of at the root of i would say also part of this radical activism to to connect with the worthiness of each person and transmit this notion of god's unconditional love of each and each of them so i don't know if you want to share some words from your personal experience in that stage scenario yeah so you know i'm I'm now also at a different stage of my work. Uh, uh -huh. I don't necessarily work on daily basis with uh, yeah. with homeless youth. Uh, a lot of my work is really focused on training others and building this kind of what would be an equivalent of a religious order, uh, uh, kind of a lay new monastic order. Um, that includes justice and working for justice as one of its charisms. Um, I still, you know, sometimes serve on the streets or uh, lead prayers in a local prison. Uh, and of course, mentor a lot of people who are formerly homeless uh, mm -hmm. youth with whom, who are now kind of an extension of our family life, you know? Yeah. Uh, but I think that to answer your question, in my life uh, at a certain time, I discovered a big shift in how I was approaching things. Um, for a while, you know, having uh, co-founded the Reciprocity Foundation, which really uh, still works with street youth and, and people who have been, you know, victims of trauma and et cetera. As you know, starting an organization, uh, a lot is involved in that. And you always have to be positioning yourself in such way that the funding community sees your work as valuable. And within the homeless youth services, a lot of the value attributed to any work is focused on helping to find people employment. Uh, the assumption is made that young people are on the streets because they can't find a job. Mm. Of course, that is not necessarily true. And also just placing people in employment usually means that we're placing them in low-skill, low-wage jobs. 
Hmm. And then, you know, they spend a couple of years living in a housing project. They're able to save money from the job that they have. Then they graduate, are able to maybe get an apartment. But then sometimes within weeks or months, they're back on the street hmm. because that job cannot sustain their life in a city like New York where everything hmm. is so expensive. And in the U.S., in most cities, I mean, there are so many we call them working poor, people who have to sleep in their cars and who have full-time jobs and mm. no insurance and et cetera. That's just the reality of our system. So, you know, initially there was a lot of pressure to play that game, to really make sure that we can get funded and then on the side, do the important work of healing, do the important work of really transitioning people from low-skill, low-wage jobs into vocational living, where they wow. find the gift that they can offer the world, but also where that kind of engagement can enable them to make a decent salary so they can move out of the shelter and etc. And so initially, you know, a lot of the work was kind of connected to specific skill sets, almost like, you know, approaching people as objects uh, or problems that we can solve uh, by helping them to rearrange different things and then move up, move up, move up, move up. Uh -huh. And at some point I realized that that was not working, that I needed to actually, that my work needed to be about prayer, about contemplative prayer, that I needed to show up for every human being in the same way that I am showing up for prayer. And how am I showing up for prayer? I'm showing up for prayer by bringing everything that I have, my pain, my joy, my questions, and then in a way just presenting it to God and then just sitting there in a state of receptivity and deep listening, trusting that whatever I bring, these very limited gifts, so to speak, that somehow the Spirit of God can descend upon me, take all of my stuff, even though some of it or maybe most of it is garbage and somehow transfigure it into something that where wounds can become gifts, right? Mm -hmm. And so in that same sense, I discovered that that needs to be the work. I show up and I need to be in this state of receptivity and deep listening as I'm sitting with someone who has been broken by life so many times, accompanying them into the depths of their pain breaking with them and mm -hmm. then yeah. in that brokenness discovering that something that is always there underneath it all which we would experience as this presence that just kind of arises in our midst and if we can consent to it so it can begin to live among us mm. the work of healing is being done all of a sudden we find the right words all of a sudden the right insights come but by then, it's not really clear who's helping whom, because yeah. the help is coming from somewhere else, uh, you know. And so for me, that's how this question of heartbreak, that's how this question of, of action really comes together in my life. And also, you know, in the Christian tradition, this whole thing about contemplation and action, how there is sort of, you know, the tradition has struggled so much uh, mm. with relating the two. Mm. Approaching contemplation from this kind of a place shows us that action should not only be related to contemplation, that action can become contemplation. Mm. Because anything that is done in the state of 
receptivity and consent, where the spirit of God can just flow through us, is turned into contemplation, is an act of prayer. You know, St. Augustine, who's, by the way, not my favorite theologian because of, you know, he's kind of very dualistic emphasis mm. sometimes, even though he's also said a lot of beautiful things. But one of his beautiful teachings in one of his commentaries was that uh, referring, you know, to, to a story from scripture about Jesus kind of being asleep, you know, with the storm and all that, he says, deep within the, the innermost cabin of our hearts, there is a sleeping Christ there. Mm. And, you know, our spiritual practices, our community, how we practice, like on some level, it's to get ready for what happens when that Christ awakens from sleep. Mm. Um, so we can then be properly positioned to allow him to live and work and maybe even protest through us where our lives become containers which he can use to, to live. It's almost like each of our lives become a body that he can begin to occupy and to do the work of healing to, as Sister Ilya Delia maybe would say, to begin to move the whole creation towards completeness, towards Christness, where mm -hmm. one day, as our scriptures say, God will be all in all, mm. right? Mm. So that's kind of how I um, understand it. And I'm curious about this, you know, in your own tradition, because um, mm. just, you know, looking at your book, I noticed that you mentioned things like centering prayer, which is about receptivity and consent. And I'm, I'm very familiar with some practices of Gaudiya Vaishnava. You know, I've studied quite a few texts. In fact, one of the first spirituality books that I read as a kid was Perfect Questions, Perfect Answers by, hmm. by Prabhupada. You know, I think hmm. I was maybe 14. Hmm. And of course, then, you know, uh, as many people do, fell in love with the cooking that he was advocating, you know, the food was just so amazing, you know. Uh, but, you know, like that book really kind of showed me very clearly that this precious life of ours uh -huh. should be about journeying towards God. That we can play many games in this life, but in the end, all of those are empty. And so I'm curious about, you know, how I talked about contemplation and action, how that relates to, uh, to your experience within uh, your tradition mm -hmm. and, you know, the Mahamantra, but also because, you know, we do Jesus prayer, for example. And mm -hmm. in my experience, you know, as I walk and as I stop and as my breath becomes synchronized with the holy name, I find myself that it takes me into that state of receptivity and consent. And, hmm. and so I'm curious about your, um, you know, yeah. whether there are some corresponding things uh, hmm. or not. Yeah, yeah. I will personally, my experience at least, thanks to begin with for sharing your, your testimony. I really love it, appreciate it. Especially when you mentioned showing showing up to to so people in general, you were referring to homeless people or people in general, showing them 
as you show up to God in prayer. I really like that line. Uh, and it, yeah, it has so many parallels. Uh, as you were talking, I couldn't avoid my mind finding my own Gaudiya version. <laughs> <laughs> and that's in part what I tried to do in, in my book. I mean, not like mm -hmm. officially a, like a parallel study of, of, of related religions or any comparative religions, but naturally, as I have personally lots of affinity for mystical Christianity, I cannot avoid like you know, finding these parallels which amaze me, basically, which mm -hmm. give me beyond, beyond, of course, the differences that may be there and are ornaments in themselves, I will say. If the foundation is so similar, so common, naturally whatever mm -hmm. diversity mm -hmm. comes on top of that will be like a like an ornament. No, not something that will clash or like a problem, but something that will by properly appreciating it will increase everyone's faith in their respective traditions, so to say. Mm -hmm. So so in our tradition, we also have this with our own terms and words. And I won't torture you too much with Sanskrit today. <laughs> but we have the idea of also, as, as you were mentioning, that action can become prayer. Prayer is not just limited to um, sitting or doing prayer in the classical way, so to say. As, as of course, you have in Christianity these quotes like pray, pray unceasingly, you say in English. Yeah, like, yeah. And of course, pray if without really, ceasing. Yeah. yeah. And if you play out, in practical terms, it will be impossible to do that if prayer won't be won't be something different from just the classical prayer. Yeah. And in our tradition, we have many lines in that similar direction. Satatam kirtiyantaman kirtaniya sadahari, and I'm torturing you with Sanskrit, <laughs> but basically implies of always engage, keep yourself always in praise of God, always praying to Him. And this word sada satatam means always without interruption. Mm -hmm. So, of course, that's speaking about the potential to be, like, sheltered under that particular spirit, and but not necessarily in, the, in terms of one specific action known as prayer, but how every action can become uh, sprinkled or embedded in a mm -hmm. prayerful spirit. So, for us, it's not so much to pray, but to do whatever we do in a prayerful, uh, from a prayerful place and and to connect action and contemplation for sure. I always like what Father Richard will say. You may know that, that when he says from his the name of his group, Center for Action and Contemplation, the most important word is and. Mm -hmm. no, not action, not contemplation, but and. No? Like the build mm -hmm. bridging of the two and one and the other, not one and the cost of the other. Mm -hmm. So, and I personally also grew very much nourished by someone like Thomas Merton. Mm -hmm. And I really was fascinated by how someone like him who never, almost never left his chamber, so to say, his cave, <laughs> he will be, he could be able to address in such a comprehensive way whatever was going on outside of that cave, so to say. Mm -hmm. So so for me, that was a very important way of, he was activist in his own way from his yeah. cave, so to say. From that particular distance, he he obtained a proper like per perspective to understand what's going on. That, that's how I like to also to to define detachment in our tradition. Like detachment doesn't mean like indifference or cold heart, but just to take certain distance from something so I can appreciate it for what it is and take mm -hmm. the proper measures. Like if I have my hand too close here, 
I cannot see it for what it is. I need some distance, some detachment, mm -hmm. and I can understand what that is and approach that accordingly. So, so in our tradition, we have that idea. You know, we say that potentially every action can be bhakti in our terms. Bhakti mm -hmm. will mean like devotion to God. You no, know, mm -hmm. if you want to use the word contemplation in connection to that, like. Although ontologically speaking, something like peeling potatoes or taking a shower is not bhakti, if you do those things in the context of praising God, pleasing Him, connecting to Him, you can be peeling a potato as part of your mm -hmm. contemplative practice, although externally mm -hmm. may seem. Mm -hmm. not, and in the same way, you can be seated in prayer in the church and your mind can be can be going shopping in so many other places. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. yeah. so so for us, it's, yeah, Krishna and the Bhagavad Gita really, really inspires that one can engage all functions, senses, mind, body, like a full immersion. Uh, for us, that's the purpose of having mind, body, and senses. Like each one mm -hmm. of those, each pore of our body, so to say, can be offered in service to him mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. so we although I, I must say although in, in theory this is our teaching and i know of course practitioners who embrace that uh, with all the love that i have for my tradition also i've done in my book is uh, some criticism constructive hopefully of my tradition in terms of i don't find that there is enough of that in the, in, in our in the current state of our tradition there is not mm -hmm. enough not only enough merging of contemplation and action but also not enough for example appreciation of action in the world so to say mm -hmm. uh, and i think that's important to bring back to the table to to again bring more humanity to mm -hmm. our experience because if not i've seen many times that in, in our tradition the only form of charity the only legal charity so to say is to for example give a book like the one you read at that time to someone because that's it the ultimate charity you are given divine knowledge so the person mm -hmm. can get delivered so to say but to give food to give shelter to give human support that's not so profound that's a narrative i'm not saying that of course yeah yeah so yeah so i think that we need to re redeem that narrative so to say and understand at least that that those things that make us the more human also can be totally aligned with the things that make us the more spiritual because similar to christianity in our tradition our ultimate goal will be fully human and fully divine it's not mm -hmm. spiritual at the cost of being human or vice versa mm -hmm. so although that's not the narrative official narrative so much but i i feel strongly about redeeming that narrative and emphasizing this integration of humanity and spirituality and and how one ultimately speaks about the other and vice versa. Thank you for that. And, you know, I mean, I think that that's the work that all of our traditions need to do, uh, yeah. in a sense, uh, rediscovering sacred humanity. Uh, yeah. Because so many of our traditions, certainly Christianity for sure, mm. uh, even though we have this beautiful theology of incarnation, uh, nonetheless, we've lived for much of our history as if that were not true. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, in a sense, we took a lot from the kind of dualistic, you know, both philosophy that probably came to us from, from ancient Greece, but mm -hmm. also some of the kind of 
modern science and by modern i mean you know th that took place during enlightenment and with descartes especially you know yeah. and yeah. philosophy uh, that sort of separated us from the mm -hmm. world separated us from our bodies yeah um and turned all of that into mathematical kind of equations or machines and i think this is the time i mean this is what the i think environmental crisis is asking us to do to mm. rediscover the earth as an extension of god's very form god's mm -hmm. very body Mm. Yeah, yeah. In, in fact, the, the last chapter of my book is called Unearthing Heaven. Mm -hmm. So I try to make that point. No, you, you have to be able to discover heaven, unearthing mm -hmm. it here. No, because mm -hmm. if not, we, as you mentioned, it's not about Christianity, it's about like a pattern that needs to be deconstructed in the present times. I would say of projecting God, future time, distant place, and not mm -hmm. like as the most immediate intimate presence ever mm -hmm. available so to say and, and and from that place even in our tradition we're talking this with Ilya how our particular theology conceives the whole material creation as an outpouring as a byproduct of God's heart over God's heart overflowing of love mm -hmm. poetically described is is like that in the scripture God's heart is overflowing in love so much so much that it starts to overflow and it takes the form of material creation, so to say. Mm -hmm. That's quite beautiful. Yeah, and that's a very redemptive theology that if you really play out the implications, is every atom is an embassy of the mm -hmm. Supreme Lord. So we are to mm -hmm. relate to, and as we were mentioning before, how you show up with to every person as if you show up for prayer. In, in our tradition, we have a similar idea. God is in everyone's heart. What mm -hmm. to speak, God is in every atom technically in our philosophy so i mean how to approach that no and and he's mm -hmm. loving everything and everyone unconditionally so mm -hmm. so so yeah we have some homework to do all of us in each mystical tradition that kind of mm -hmm. for, sure. Mm -hmm. for sure yeah yeah adam oh. adam you mentioned you mentioned a few minutes ago uh the idea of unconditional love at one point so I, I like to i don't know the inspiration came to ask you as i like to ask every person what's radical personalism for you so what's unconditional love for you now if you yeah. have to share a few words regarding how you will define that what's your experience or and, and and your attempt to extend that to others or how you relate to the to those two words unconditional love which I think yes. are, sorry, that I think are so important in relation to what we are talking on a deeper understanding of this principle and how it's already operating in all directions. I mean, for me, unconditional love equals, uh, you know, in many ways, always points to to God, and so therefore, uh, when I talk about unconditional love, I talk about this presence, this energy, that. Uh, is present here at all times that we can open to, that is moving us always towards healing, towards wholeness, towards uh, transformation, uh, towards you know the reality where God is all in all. Uh, so in that sense, for me, that's what unconditional love is really about. And so then extending that to others, 
means again kind of going back to my definition of contemplative prayer is essentially becoming um, an empty vehicle for that love to live in the world. And in the process of that, you know, and this is very interesting because on one hand, we're talking about vocation, which is discovering our unique kind of purpose and mission. On the other hand, we're talking about being an empty uh, kind of vessel in which God can live. And I think that uh -huh. this is the beautiful uh, paradox of it, that to be an expression or a reflection of God's love in a way, how we conceive of ourselves, even our specialness, that has to die. But when wow. it does, in the process, we discover ourselves to be the most ourselves we've ever been. Wow. So, so, so I think that that is the paradox, you know, because I think many people would see that phrase, you know, dying to self, or what St. John of the Cross talks about, you know, the, the kind of the dark night experience mm -hmm. where everything that is familiar in a way dissolves. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean nothingness. It, it mm -hmm. means that in that experience, it's really our operating system that kind of, um, you know, um, dies or is transformed so we can discover our true aliveness, our true self, uh, our true gift in God as mm -hmm. it exists in God in its uh, beautiful form that is kind of made of God's energy and God's oh. presence and where that love is simply reflected. And, you know, um, I think it's fair to say, you know, in the Christian tradition, uh, um, there are different views on things like holiness and etc. cetera. But, uh, you know, we tend to be more on the safe side, you know, by by saying that, you know, in this life, that love will always be reflected, you know, imperfectly uh, mm. through us. Even if we have, you know, kind of high level of, you know, awakening or holiness or whatever we want to call that, there is always more to go because God is infinite. And the journey never ends in some way or form. I think it was St. Gregory who talked about that continuous uh, growth, you know, that is possible within the divine. So I don't want to kind of paint a false picture that, you know, we have an experience of God and then somehow we're transformed and we can walk on this earth, you know, thinking all these great things about ourselves, you know. Uh, it's more about each day kind of, allowing what you know thomas merton would call false self to mm -hmm. deconstruct so something of god can be manifested in us as father thomas kidding would say so we may become the fifth gospel uh, mm. you know so we may become an embodiment of god's energy in the world in in a unique way because each of us is and I mean, I think that our traditions are probably similar in the sense that we believe that each of us is quite unique. And it's not about going to sameness, even though the process uh, that takes us towards uniqueness oftentimes asks us to cease being what we think we are. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, we are we are on the same page, Adam. I, again, I was the corresponding parallels of our tradition were like popping in my mind when you were talking about emptying yourself and being unique and 
dying to leave, as Hegel will say it also, like, mm -hmm. and these paradoxes of the more I, I enter into a space of, we will say, self-forgetfulness in divine mm -hmm. love, mm -hmm. the more we are an individual offering to God, not in mm -hmm. hyper individual for his pleasure uniquely. And for me, that's a big part of my book, Radical Personalism, how we develop our unique individuality, not mm -hmm. in terms of individualism, no, like only me, 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 mm -hmm. but just, but as you mentioned, allowing God to live his life through me. No, no my life mm -hmm. is not only my life, but he's trying to live his life through each one of us and allowing that to happen. Although it may seem like we have to empty ourselves, we have to go against the specificity of being a person you ultimately is bringing us to the greatest potential we can conceive of, of, of who we are. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I appreciated your mention of Saint Gregory also in connection to the ever unfolding nature of the path because for us it's basically the same idea. For us, mm -hmm. bhakti is our practice, but bhakti is our goal. No? Mm -hmm. So we want to yeah. serve and love God, so we can serve and love God, as redundant yeah. as that yeah. may sound. Yeah. I remember someone once asked uh, Prabhupada, one person asking Prabhupada, what's the what will be the fruit of chanting Hare Krishna? No, he felt that the person was expecting some magical result. No, you will be able to float in the air, or we, you will know the number of the lottery, whatever. <laughs> and he went to the point. He said, the result of chanting Hare Krishna is that you will be able to chant more Hare Krishna. No, yeah. like making this point that we are what yeah. we are doing, what we are doing, we are doing it for eternity we, we are mm -hmm. so happy doing what we are doing because we are projecting to continue doing this as an permanent unfolding and increase and in progress and depth so so yeah that's basically the beauty of the path and, and of, of the, the connection with with divine love and unconditional love so thank I you know. for your Yes, I, I love that answer. <laughs> that the result will be so you can do more of it. That's yeah. perfect. Yeah. You know, of course, it's a challenging reply because it's okay. Let's see how much you like what you are doing at present. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. If, but but I totally agree with your point, Adam, of of on the importance of which I don't think is that easy, and and, and I think it's a big challenge. I, I developed a whole chapter in my book on on the concept of individuation. Yes, yeah. Carl Jung yeah. will speak about that. But again, not so much as a private uh, accomplishment. Now I'm individuating myself, but how I can be as personal as I can to make myself an offering, yeah. and that be a be as personal includes this willingness to be invaded by grace and and let go of whatever notions I have of myself, and I allow myself to die so many times before I die, so to say. <laughs> yeah. But, but you know, that's why I'm so glad that and grateful that you're including in your book these concepts like individuation, because I think that uh, so much of spirituality and spiritual practice can also be used as an excuse to not want to just deal with all of our stuff. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, as an excuse not to do the hard work of growing up, not to do yeah. the hard work of claiming who we are. Uh, and again, it's always a paradox because 
Detachment is important, but detachment, as you beautifully said, doesn't mean disengagement, which sometimes I know I certainly at the beginning of my journey kind of, you know, probably everyone goes through that. It's all about getting out of my life, out of my body, and imagining that I can be some kind of, I don't know, a holy saddle living in the Himalayas, you know, that that's where uh, everything will be found. And yet the journey oftentimes requires us to come down from the mountain and engage in the messiness of love, of life and love and, and sort through all of that uh, only in the process to discover that we can't really let go of something that we don't have. We first uh-huh. have to uh, really be in our lives. Uh-huh. And also the experience of God can't happen anywhere else but in Mm -hmm. our lives you know Mm -hmm. even though sometimes i think the spiritual literature makes us think that we have to become someone other than uh, we are that we have to live uh, someone else's life in order to meet god and yet it's all here Mm -hmm. Uh, in this body in this mind in this world kind of as you said you know the, the the heaven and the earth yeah, we will say that's heaven is a state of consciousness, basically. Yeah. Now it's yeah. not so much like a, a geographical 3D space that an, a spaceship will take you physically and now you are there. Yeah. I mean, if you are not there now, you won't be there there tomorrow if you are not getting closer to that inner space now. You know? Because sometimes, yeah. yeah, I've seen practitioners fantasizing like, okay, I'm going there. When I die, I'm going there. But if you are not getting closer there now, and there I mean a state of consciousness again, we are we are yeah. not going there. But yeah, as you mentioned, we in the beginning <coughs> for practice, I think all of us we have a license to to yeah. be in the kinder in the kindergarten, so to That's say, and right. we will be romanticizing the cave <laughs> and considering and, you know, everything. Yeah. And you know those those romantic ideals are very powerful in a sense that they certainly got me to do the practice yeah uh, it's just that that also means that there will be some disillusionment and some purification and some uh, you know falling apart later on but that's just part of the journey yeah but i totally agree that as a spirituality ideally has the potential to help us confront all this inner messiness spirituality address without maturity can be the perfect evasive device to all those same things. Yeah. Even better, a better evasive device than any other device because it has the, it has the holiness halo. So, so yeah, we have to deal with that in a very delicate way. Yeah. 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 Adam, since we are wrapping up, we have a few more minutes. If, If you will, something that came to my mind, since you mentioned to me that, that you have been recently married with you to your wife. She was a former monastic, Buddhist, Buddhist monastic. And I imagine you yourself also spent a few number of years in your life as a monastic. So regarding this idea of getting out of the cave, so to say, and entering the world and dealing with messiness, which I'm not saying married life is messiness. I'm just saying change of dynamics, which in the in the initial romantic idea may be like, Monastic is better. This again, type of rejection notions that yeah. bad is bad, family life. So I was just wondering how it has been for the two of you to 
to enter this new space together and and discover that of course there's so equally chances to continue growing and and discovering God in in living together as a couple and, and dealing with other situations outside of a monastic dynamic because I feel that for many monastics that eventually will transition into married life which I I know many in our tradition uh, it will be important to hear about that yeah yeah thank you for uh, for that question um, if I'm become if I'm becoming too personal let me know Adam we can change no, the question. No. <laughs> no that's good uh, it's 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 fine um, you know, it's an important question because I think that both of us, uh, my wife and I, I mean, she was kind of really formally uh, uh, a nun for 15 years. So not a short time. And before that, for a couple of years, you know, before she uh, she took the, the vows. Mm -hmm. uh, and she loved that life, but also she came to a point where she knew that uh, she was being called elsewhere, not necessarily letting go of her practice, but entering a new context. And for me, you know, for much of my 20s, I was sort of kind of really searching for this ideal of how to live as a monastic in the world. Mm -hmm. um, so quite a few years. Uh, and being married in some ways... Uh, is very different in a sense that you have to deal with a lot of, you know, like the, the gift of solitude, for example, that some monastic orders offer, not all, um, is very different. You, it's something to be negotiated. Uh, the, uh, you know, just two different lives with specific patterns interacting with each other uh, you know, and sometimes that evokes difficulties that kind of, uh, you know, brings up past hurts and etc. But for us, you know, this is a wonderful opportunity. We try to see our home as this kind of a small, um, you know, Buddhist Christian monastery where we have a specific schedule, where we wake up, we practice together, we engage in specific readings, we set the tone through, you know, conversations where we reflect on those readings and then touching base with different practices where we are always given an opportunity to go back to that center, to go back to that silence, to go back to that state where we can meet, uh, you know, to use the words from the Upanishads in the cave of the heart, mm. uh, where we are kind of more or less than our traditions where we can just dwell in this state of interconnectedness, in silence. Um, and in that state, our different theologies, uh, all of a sudden our gifts, because we realize that our two different traditions are uh, oftentimes experiencing the divine, different components of the divine, or similar components, but experiencing them differently. So this gives us an opportunity to integrate and as a result to grow our hearts. Um, in addition to that, uh, a married life is a real opportunity to, you know, kind of live a countercultural life because oh. the, uh, the mainstream society tells us that 
you know, we should be getting getting married because of those wonderful, you know, warm, fuzzy feelings, which sometimes we get when we meet someone, when we fall in love. And I think in our case, you know, uh, we've had and have all of those feelings, but very early on, because of our background, we knew that we are coming together for a spiritual purpose. And we knew that love is not a feeling. It is a choice. It is a vow that we make. And that vow is often accompanied by feelings. But those oh. feelings can sometimes feel like heartbreaks. Those feelings sometimes feel blissful and sometimes difficult. And mm -hmm. so the invitation there is to be in touch with the energy of that vow and what its purpose is. And then use our lives to keep on aligning ourselves, to keep on healing parts of ourselves that are not yet capable of living in that space that the vow points us to, where we are more and more embodiments uh, of love, you know? And one wonderful thing about marriage is, and this is a new experience for me, you know, when I was alone, even when I tried to live a monastic life, I was on when I was serving, when I was in prayer, and then the days that were difficult, I always faced them alone. And in a way, there was no witness. Hmm. So in a way, it was very easy for me not to fully engage with the material that emerged during the difficulties. Now, hmm. I find that I always have this loving mirror that is there witnessing me, both when I'm in my best and when I'm not at my best. And yet that mirror that sometimes maybe is frightening because all of a sudden I'm seeing some things for the first time. Hmm. is a mirror that is projecting this loving energy. I am here for you. I am here for you. And that is an extraordinary experience because I feel that that reflects something of how God is present for us. Where whether we're on our best or not at our best, there is that constant presence of a loving presence, right? That is there to, to, to be there for us. Uh, all we need to do is just open to it, to accept the forgiveness, to say yes to it. And as a result, to be healed, to be changed. So, you know, that's kind of what marriage feels like. And of course, on top of it, you know, this whole idea of how our commitments make us, where uh, you know, in any life, there are joys and there are difficulties and how we can take turns holding each other when the other one is suffering. Again, showing up with this energy of I am here for you because this is what the vow uh, points to. And so I don't know if I'm answering, you know, no, that's, uh, that's what, what you asked or if it's maybe too abstract, no, but, no, 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 but that's, it's really that's... a gift, you know, that... For, for me, married life has been a gift that I'm yeah. really grateful for uh, because I'm discovering so much about myself. Uh, and ultimately, also being on my own, I feel like I thought that I have dealt with some areas of my life already. And now when there is that witness, I'm like, man, there's some more work that I got to do. Look at that reactivity that is arising in me right uh -huh. now. Mm. About what? About nothing. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so it's been a great gift, you know. And Thank yet you. we try to, you know, live our lives 
in this kind of a new monastic fashion where we have a daily schedule, where spiritual practice and spiritual commitment is at the core of why we are together. Beautiful, Adam. Thank you so much. And yeah, that was exactly what I, I mean, what I was expecting from you because also I'm, although I'm a monastic myself, a sannyasi, I'm very much about redeeming family life because in many traditions, not only mine, but sometimes that's downplayed that something comparatively inferior to being a monastic and there's entanglement, but actually there's so much portals and facilitators to confronting mm -hmm. all the things you are mentioning and actually become more committed. Now, I like what mm -hmm. you mentioned, the emphasis on the vows, not as a mechanical force rule to follow, but as a very passionate commitment with truth. And, and as you mentioned, how love is not a feeling I like that it was it's kind of a full circle with how we began talking about we are not after happiness nor suffering, but after purpose, whatever mm -hmm. we are. <laughs> so mm -hmm. love is not so much a, a feeling, but a particular depth of of commitment with reality. And I'm so happy that you are, of course, with some partner that is offering unconditional acceptance, because, of course, all of each of us need that whether we are yeah. monastics or not <laughs> we yeah. need that unconditional acceptance and empathic hearing and presence so yeah. so i think whether we are in one situation or not these principles you have shared in the context of married life are basically essential elements for anyone to to have in their own particular order yeah. so yeah but yeah. i i thank you so much for your words adam and, and we are just reaching the end of our meeting so i don't know if you have any final thoughts, something you may like to share that was not coming yet, but you would like to make that clear. If not, no problem, whatever comes. <laughs> well, I'm just grateful for this conversation. I'm grateful for meeting you. I feel like I uh, met a friend and a brother, you know, and, and that's always such a, such a wonderful uh, feeling. So thank you for, uh, you know, being who you are and for mm -hmm. your life of dedication, teaching and insight. And also sometimes, uh, a life where you're not afraid to offer critical perspective uh, oh. to your tradition as well as other traditions. Uh, in this day and age, this is very important that uh, that our commitment is to truth and not just to replicating even what we've been given, even though what we've been given uh, made us who we are and has so much wisdom and so much beauty. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I just really appreciate how you are and who you are. Uh, so thank you for that. Thank you so much for your words. Generous. And I'm trying to be who I'm supposed to be. I'm not finished product and we may never be, but I appreciate your, your appreciation. Mm -hmm. And that's, that encourages me to try to continue <laughs> mm -hmm. in, in the wave somehow or other. And I'm also personally discovering a new a new friend today in you, so I'm very blessed. Not only today, when we started talking, but I'm making that an official public statement now. <laughs> and I look forward to, yeah, somehow develop our relationship in whatever direction our Supreme Lord beloved wants to take us. So thank you so much, Adam, for Wonderful. accepting the thank invitation. You. And I will share again the link for those who would like to connect with Adam and know about his work. Do you have two websites one is father adam buco buco is with ck.com father adam buco.com or and, and the other website is spiritualimagination.org so thank you so much to you thank you so much to everyone else and our next episode will be next saturday 
Saturday, September 30th at 10 a.m. EDT time. And as part of the different guests that I'm having this month from different traditions, Brian McLaren will be participating next Saturday, a very dear friend and a very unique author. I will be talking with him about what keeps spiritual, spiritual traditions alive. So that will be our conversation for next week. So again, thank you so much, Adam. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. To all of you. See you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.